At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Matthew 24. So good to see you all here. About four weeks ago, I had asked the congregation at 1030 if they would please help us just um, take some of the pressure off that service so that we could be um, just for this season, you know, while we have fewer seats in the sanctuary and to come to one of the other services. And, and I know a number of you responded and you're here because of that. And so thank you guys. Thank you for being, uh, just for working with the church and considering the greater good. So it's just a short-term strategy uh, until we're able to just have more capacity here. And so I just want to thank you for that, you guys. That's, um, that's really important for who we are as the body of Christ. Um, I, so I have one more ask <laughs> to ask, uh, but not uh, just of you or the ones at 1030 or 9. I'm asking the whole congregation. It's just for one Sunday, and that's for Easter. You know, Easter is coming up, and uh, last year we did not get to be together. You know, so we have like two years. Wait, what happened? Oh, okay. Did I say something wrong? Um, that's good. I love these guys. So, um, no, but last year we did not get to be together for Easter, so we have like two years pent up here, right, of, of coming together as the church for Good Friday for Easter, and we want to be able to have space, and so we've added a fourth service at 2 p.m. on um, for Easter Sunday. And so the request is for any of you who are able to make that service, would you please consider it? You know, it's just for that Sunday um, so we can come. You know, maybe you could go and have brunch with your family and friends, then come to the service, then go take a nap or whatever it is you do on Easter. But it would really help us as a congregation. So I just wanted to put it before you uh, while we're still a few weeks away so you can start planning in that way. I'm asking the whole congregation to do that. I trust that the Lord will help us um, because we want you to be able to bring your friends. And um, so I just leave that before you. Also for Good Friday. We have three services, 4, 5.30, and 7 p.m. The 4 o'clock is the mass required service for the duration of the service. And, uh, and we have sign, a sign-up online for Good Friday. For Easter, we don't have a sign-up, but we do for Good Friday. So you can go online to our events page and register for Good Friday. But I'm so looking forward to, uh, as we were not, especially as we were not able to do this together last year. Matthew 24, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This series has been all about the defeat of earthly kingdoms and the complete arrival of yours. Your kingdom come. We are the joyful recipients of your kingdom, your rule. And so, Lord, use your word today to get us ready, ready for the return of our King. We love you. We thank you for this congregation of your people who so willingly follow you, who so willingly work together for the 
greater good of the church family and our community. Bless them, God. Bless them in every way. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. William Faulkner is one of the most celebrated American novelists of the 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1949. I've been reading a book that my wife gave me for Christmas called The Pairs Review Interviews, which features interviews with different writers such as Toni Morrison, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Faulkner himself. And I wanted to read you a section of the interview with Faulkner because as I was reading it, uh, it, it struck me as a great illustration of the accepted belief in our culture that we should give our all, complete devotion to that which captures our heart, that which becomes our reason for living. The interviewer asked Faulkner, how does a writer become a serious novelist? And Faulkner says, 99% talent, 99% discipline, 99% work. He must never be satisfied with what he does. It never is as good as it can be done. Always dream and shoot higher than you know you can do. Don't bother just to be better than your contemporaries or predecessors. Try to be better than yourself. An artist is a creature driven by demons. He doesn't know why they choose him and he's usually too busy to wonder why. He's completely amoral in that he will rob, borrow, beg, or steal from anybody and everybody to get the work done. Now, do you hear his call to total abandon? It seems that the end justifies the means. The goal, in this case, art, becomes this master that drives the artist ruthlessly toward perfection. Perfection. 
Now, I share that because I find it interesting that in our secular culture, we're big proponents of autonomy. I am a law unto myself. No one has the right to tell me who I am or what I should do with my life. But the reality is that, yes, maybe I have some initial choices that I'm able to do as far as the goal that I'm going to go after, art, sports, business. But once I make that choice, that goal itself becomes the master, my master. Faulkner says, an artist is a creature driven by demons. He doesn't know why they choose him. And he might have spoken there better than he intended. Because you see, when you choose your goal, your field, whether it's art or medicine or ministry, there are forces, there are laws that begin to set your priorities, to tell you who you should be and how you should behave. Otherwise, you're out. So what do we do? We figure out how to become a big fish in a small pond or a big fish in a big pond so we can set the rules of engagement for others. But either way, we're still in the pond. We're still in the pond. So much for freedom and autonomy. You see, as we continue this series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, we're going to see today that Jesus begins to shift the focus to what it is we should do in light of his return and of the fact that we don't know when it'll take place. And one of the things that he makes clear is that there are expectations that he has for how we are to live in light of his return. Just as Faulkner and anyone else who wants to accomplish anything with their lives have a master, so also Christians have a master. We're not free to live however we want. But here's the thing. Secular people also have a a master. And that master for us has expectations. Everyone has a master. The difference is that our master is not a demon. Our master is good, powerful, and immortal. There will be a day of reckoning. And so the question for all of us is, are you ready? Are we ready? So how do we get ready for the certain return of the master? Two things, be prepared, be faithful. Let's start with the first one, be prepared. Now let's begin by recapping where we've been because remember Matthew 24 and 25 are a unit, one speech. Jesus begins by disrupting the thinking in the disciples, which he does all the time for us. So that when he leaves the Jerusalem temple, he points to the buildings that the disciples were so impressed by and tells them that they're coming down. Not one stone will be left on another. This, of course, just thinking of this reality, the demise of their greatest national symbol was traumatic for them to say the least. And so they ask him for an explanation. When? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your return and of the end of the age? And so in response, he tells them four things. He tells them first that the fall of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple will not coincide. It will not be at the same time as his return. He also tells them that for the entire church age, um, they can expect distress so that there will be wars and betrayals and persecutions and false prophets, but that's not a sign of the end, to not be alarmed. He also tells them that when Jerusalem's desolation is at hand, there will be intensified distress, great tribulation, such as has not been before or after. And then he also tells them that he's coming back 
with power and great glory, and it will be impossible to miss. So that's where we've been the last three weeks. And with all of that, he does not want them to be led astray, to be alarmed, but rather to endure to the end because he who endures to the end, he says, will be saved. And God will not allow things to get as bad as they could. Now, with the delay of his return, Jesus now begins to tease out for us the kind of mindset that can set in that is so unhelpful and actually damning. In this passage, he's teaching us primarily, not only, but primarily by negative example. So let's read on. In verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus did not consider it sufficient to tell us that when we see all these trying events, the end is not yet. He now goes on to explicitly tell us that concerning that day, or our, no one knows, not the angels, not the son, only the father. So not only should we not be alarmed by the events of the entire age, we should not even be trying to figure out the end of the age. He couldn't have say it, said it in starker terms. He says, no one knows, not the angels, not, not the son, only the Father. Now, where some people go with that verse is to questions of Christology. What does Jesus' self-confessed ignorance mean? Does it mean that he's not fully God? No, it doesn't mean that. The New Testament equally insists on Jesus' deity as well as his humanity and dependence on God the Father. And we will do well to emphasize both of those things as well. There's mystery here. For example, Jesus felt hunger, something which God the Father never does, never will. We just accept these realities as they're given to us in scripture. But where this verse, however, should take us is to put an end once and for all to our fascination with trying to figure out the time of the end. Listen, the central figure of that day, the day of judgment, will be Jesus Christ himself. He will do the judging. He will sit on his glorious throne. And even he doesn't know the time of the end. It defies all reason how some people think they can do better than the Lord. Now, because that day is future and impossible to predict, here's what's going to happen, he says. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Okay, so Jesus here is so helpful. He's basically saying, you can't figure out the future timing of the end. What you can do is you can know the conditions that will be present based on a past event, the flood in Noah's day. So the question for us is, what are the parallels that Jesus makes between the flood and his return? And there are four things here that he tells us. The first one is the mindset that will be present in verse 38. He says, people will be eating or we're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Jesus here gives us the perspective of those who were destroyed during the flood in Noah's time, which interestingly is something that the account in Genesis does not do. In Genesis, the account of the flood uh, 
is narrated to us through the lens of Noah and his family. But here Jesus is telling us the, the mindset that was present during that time. And basically, what was it? People were just going about their business, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, so on and so forth. You see, the mindset has always been strong that everything will be as it always has. It's entrenched in the human psyche that things are just going to go on as they always have. Even though events like COVID or the deep freeze in Texas a couple of weeks ago should give us pause. No, everything will not go as it always has. That's the first thing. The second thing at the end of verse 38, he says, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So this mindset that everything will be as it's always been will persist, will be present just as it was during Noah's time until the time of the end. There will not be a dramatic change. Then in verse 39, he says, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Unaware. Doesn't that word capture well our culture as it relates to the purposes of God? No understanding and no desire to understand. No belief and no desire to believe. That kind of mindset will be prevailing. That condition will prevail just like it did at Noah's time until Christ's return. And then they will all be swept away. That's humbling. And ought to cause trembling in us as we think of that day. And then he speaks of that separation that will happen in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Much has been made of these two verses. We don't have time to go into the reasons and problems with some of those theories. Uh, we're not told where they're taken to or why. Is this a taking for judgment or for rescue? What Jesus is describing here is two very common daily life practices and then the suddenness and unpreparedness that separates father and son in the field, mother and daughter at the mill. But the point he's making is that there's a great time of sifting, of sorting, of separation coming. The parable of the wheat speaks to this. We talked about that last week. The parable or the story of the, goat, uh, the goats and the sheep in chapter 25 in Matthew also speaks to this, which by the way is where we're going. This is where Jesus lands the sermon. And that story also speaks of this great separation that the king, Christ, will do at the end of the age. And so in light of the suddenness and certainty of his arrival, how should we live? I mean, this is where the whole sermon is going. Remember, he's two days from death. He's getting them ready. It's good for us to be thinking about this as we're heading into Easter. How should we live? All of chapter 24 has been giving us preparation for where he's landing us now, and he's going to stay there using all kinds of parables and stories to get us ready. So... Verse 42, he says, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Stay awake. That's his word. He's going to keep beating that drum, sounding that note for a few more times. Stay awake. Be ready. Don't get distracted. Don't get too busy. Don't think that you have time so you'll just get your act together with God later on. Stay awake. The metaphor of the thief, of the burglar breaking in, shows up in a number of New Testament texts in relation to the return of Christ. It made an impression in the early church. Burglaries are still common in the most advanced countries and safest cities and neighborhoods. After the last service, uh, someone told me last night, someone got into my car. They took my wallet. He lives in a very safe neighborhood. And so back then, these were even more common. But think about what Jesus is saying. If you knew at what time the burglar was coming, It'd be much, much easier, right? It'd be much easier to just keep watch in that slice of time, right? You know, some of you remember two and a half years ago, we had this rat caught in our house and it was the bane of my existence, you know? It took us, I mean, we finally got it, but it took us forever. I think the rat was like, you guys are so slow, you know? But, but we were, you know, we were trying, but you know, but it would have been so much easier if we knew what time of the night the rat came out and started eating our food and strolling throughout our house, it'd been so much easier. I mean, we still would have needed night vision goggles and a good shot like Mike Cuneo, but, but still, it would have been so much easier. I mean, if you go to Florida on vacation and you know that that week that you're gone on Wednesday at 1 a.m., Thieves are coming to your house, you'd do something different, would you not? Of course you would. Hands down, you'd be ready. And that's precisely what Jesus says we don't know. He says he's coming at an hour you don't expect him. And no, we can't play silly games saying, well, I'm expecting him today, so I know today he won't come. No, none of that. Be ready, he says. Are you ready? Are you awake? Are you staying awake when he returns? Will he find you ready or distracted or too busy or giving your allegiance to something else? We went fast over it. But that whole image of everyone else being swept away is awe-inspiring. So be prepared. Finally, be faithful. Be prepared be faithful. The theme is still, what will Jesus find us doing upon his return? So what he does now is he gives us an example of two servants, or I should say one servant that could go in one of two directions, faithful and wise or wicked. So let's take the first one, faithful and wise first. Verse 45, he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Is this you? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay, so this one is happy. This is a good one. The scenario is a master that has a servant that he puts in charge of the rest of the servants, the rest of the household, to give them the food at the proper time, take care of them. So he gives them this trust, this assignment. And Jesus then says, blessed, blessed is that servant if when the master comes back, he finds him doing what he assigned. Part of that blessing is going to be that he's going to set him over all his possessions. So there's this promotion coming. Now, I've spoken to many of you many times about a promotion that either you got or that you have coming. And there's always this excited energy around it. You know, people prepare, people pray, people share the good news. It's good. Sometimes the promotion might not be the best fit for you. But I've never met anyone who's come to me and said, John, I'm up for an amazing promotion and I'm so bummed about it. (laughs) No, it's a good thing. It's good news. You share with others so they'll go, Congratulations, you're blessed. That's what he says, blessed. Blessed is that servant. The word blessed is too religious sounding for our ears, unfortunately, because it's a great word and it shows up a number of times in scripture and we don't want to lose it, but we do lose, you know what I'm saying? Some of, some of the meaning, you know, the Greek word behind that translation is makarios. And what that word um, denotes is something amazing, something really wonderful. Now you probably have noticed that when we use the word blessed, we often mean lucky. You know, like, oh wow, you're so lucky that thing, things turn out so well for you. That's not how Jesus uses it. He doesn't use it to mean that someone is lucky. Oh, you're so blessed. You're so lucky. Like at random or by chance, things just happen to work out for this person. That's not how he uses it. And he doesn't even use it mostly to talk about someone that God specifically favors. Even though that's also true. I mean, everyone here who's a Christian is especially favored by God. It's just that that's not what Jesus does with that word. Certainly not here, but in other places. What the word is getting at is this sense of how good, how well it goes for you. Not because you're lucky, not because God chose you specifically for favor, but rather because you follow his will. You follow his will. And so the master says to the servant here, Makarios, blessed are you. How great it goes to you because you're found doing what the servant, what the master assigned to you when he returns. When he returns, he puts a seal of approval over you. Blessed, approved, how happy. That's what he says. The faithful, wise servant has coming. We need to grasp this. We need to grasp this state of affairs, this feeling. Because man, this, this is what you live for. Whatever you give yourself to all the way, it's for that feeling. So I think of a, I think of a couple on their wedding day. Maybe you can think of your own wedding day. The joy the festivities, the bridal party, the solemnity of the moment. As the ceremony progresses, the officiant pronounces you of husband and wife and you kiss. And then he presents you for the very first time, says, 
Now for the very first time, it's my honor to present to you Mr. and Mrs. John and Jane Doe. And people clap and the music starts and the bride and groom turn to the congregation and face the world. Okay, so if we could zoom in on their faces and freeze that moment in time, what they're feeling right then, that all is well, that they have all this hope for the future, they're filled with so much delight, that's Macarius. Blessed. And that kind of significance and satisfaction and delight, except times a hundred or a thousand, is what is coming to you when Jesus returns and commends you for your faithfulness. And he's going to have more and more and more to give to you. And we're going to love it. That's what the faithful and wise servant has coming. Is that you? Now let's look at the wicked servant. Verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Your closest friend is not who you think it is. You might think it's your spouse. You might think it's your friend from work or from school. But do you know who your closest friend is? It's the internal monologue that's ever present in your thoughts. That's your closest friend. And that internal monologue talks to you all the time, whether you like it or not. It can only be silenced when you fall asleep. He or she offers commentary on everything you see, everything you feel, everything other people do. And here's the thing. Your internal monologue is not that good of a friend. It's not a very reliable friend. In fact, your internal monologue turns against you in one way or another every day. It's why scripture talks about the renewal of our minds. We need our minds renewed every day. It's what's happening here today. It's what happens when you, when you study the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, you're renewing your mind so that your internal monologue will match God and God's word and will not turn against you. Well, the wicked servant has an internal monologue that is destructive. In fact, it's damning to him. Look at verse 48. That wicked servant says to himself, do you see it? He's talking to himself, but what he's saying is not helping him. He says, my master is delayed. He should be saying, my master is coming anytime. I better be ready. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, my master is delayed, which by the way is true. We've said before that part of what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's helping the disciples understand that the age, the entire church age might be, might be longer than they think. That's not where this wicked servant went wrong. Where he went wrong is what he did with the information. 
Because look at verse 49. He starts thinking, my master's delayed. So he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. You see, the delay had the wrong effect on the wicked servant. The delay had the wrong effect on the wicked servant. Why? Why do you think that he started beating his fellow servants? Because the master is gone. He thinks there's no accountability. He can do whatever he wants. He interprets the master's delay as the master's non-existence. He interprets the master's delay as a license to become licentious, unrestrained in his morality and obligation. He cuts himself off from the trust, the assignment the master had given him. And it does not go well for him when the master returns. Jesus here shocks us with a gruesome and vivid image of judgment. In verse 50, he says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the master does return at a day, at an hour, that the servant does not know. He does not expect the day of reckoning is coming and it spells disaster for the wicked servant. Can you think of a more gruesome picture of loss than dismemberment? Being cut in pieces is the opposite of blessedness, of makarios, of shalom, of peace and approval and the good. Listen, Jesus will return. What will he say to you? Welcome into my eternal blessing or go into everlasting weeping and gnashing of teeth. What will this, the master find you doing? What will he find us doing? Really, think about this. Are you taking it easy? Are you distracted? Are you giving yourself over to the flesh to sin? Because you're like, oh, there's time. There's time for me to get my life together. What are you doing? The window is shorter than you might think. Either he returns to earth first or you return to him. But are you ready? You see, we began by saying that everyone has a master. Everyone has a master. William Faulkner describes art as this master under which the artist must bow and do whatever it takes to please it. He goes on and he says, the writer's only responsibility is to his art, the master. He will be completely ruthless if he's a good one. He has a dream and it anguishes him so much he must get rid of it. He has no peace until then. Everything goes by the board. Honor, pride, decency, security, happiness, all to get the book written. If a writer has to rob his mother, he will not hesitate. Listen, our culture celebrates that kind of all-consuming abandon and devotion in service of a master we approve of, such as art. Maybe you'd say, oh, I'm more into sports. Well, it's well known that Tom Brady credits 
much of his longevity and success in the NFL to the TB12 method, which is a strict healthness and well, health and wellness regimen. And a lot of it has to do with his sleep routine. He goes to bed. He's been doing this for a long time. He goes to bed at 9 p.m. and doesn't eat right before bedtime. He writes, Tom Brady, he says, the last thing I eat at night is dinner. And if I ever eat dessert, I try to do it after lunch so the excess sugar won't keep me up at night. He's not munching on chips or eating ice cream to unwind, people. He avoids alcohol, caffeine, and sugar. He doesn't exercise at night. He turns off all distractions. All electronic devices must be turned off 30 minutes before bedtime. That's 8.30, people. We're talking about a grown man. <laughs> if I try to start the bedtime routine with my kids at 8.30, they go on strike. He's been doing this for years. The cell phone cannot be by the bed. There's no TV in the bedroom. And he sleeps in bioenergetic pajamas. Not quite Superman pajamas, but close. <laughs> close. Now here's the thing, I know that's funny, but listen to me. Faulkner with art, Brady with football. Everyone has a master. Everyone has a master. What about you? Who is your master? And if it's Jesus, are you bowing to him? Are you bowing before him with all that you have? Because if you're not, there's another master that you're bowing to and you need to know what it is. You need to know it. You need to be able to name your master. These people can, clearly. No apology. What about us? Who is your master? Are you bowing to him? Are you giving your all to him? Or are you distracted? Are you taken over by other things? Are you dull? We can get dull so easily, which is why Christ wants to be helpful to us and finishes. This is his last discourse to us before he dies. And he keeps sounding the same note. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. To what lengths will you go to conquer pornography? Because I know that it can be a struggle, but I also know people and guys and people that struggle with this, but they also sip from it on the side. As if it's not poison. Would you ever do that with poison? To what lengths would you go to conquer this thing? Yes, it can be hard. Which is why you need to enlist all kinds of help and be radical about it. Jesus says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, if that's what it takes for you to get, enter into life. That's the kind of radical abandon he expects. It wasn't a suggestion, it's his expectation. And when you listen to Faulkner and Brady, you, it's like they've listened to him, except about other things. What about us, about what really matters? Do we take, do we have this kind of intensity? To what lengths will you go to learn the Bible, to learn the scriptures, to hide them within your heart and mind so you can give them to others and so you can get to heaven? Is it precious in your life? Is it a priority? You wake up before you need coffee, before you need anything else. You need the word, you need the word of God. I know for many of you, yes, 
that's the case. And I love talking to you. And I love learning what God is doing by means of his word in your life. It's so amazing. It's so refreshing. You're after him. You want to know him. And you know that the word is the only way that will happen. So you're in it. Awesome. But to what lengths will you go? To what lengths will you go to become a good husband or a good wife? Are you dull? Do you say, oh, we're in a covenant. She's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He'll stick around. Or are you taking that covenant and making it precious to you all the days of your life? Husbands, it should bother us. It should bother us when we know we're doing something that's hurting our spouse, our wife. It should bother us. I'm not saying those things are not going to be there. They will be. They are for me. But man, when we know that this is hurting them, we should declare war against that thing. We should be like, I don't want this. I'm not going to excuse myself behind my personality or this or that. No, I want to I fight it because you matter to me. We have Christ saying to us, love your wife as I loved my bride and gave myself for her. And same for wives. To what lengths will you go to become this woman who's faithful and tender and loves and builds up your husband rather than tearing him down or taking him for granted? The witness the witness that that kind of marriage gives to our children and to the world is amazing. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I never went to church. By the time I was 18, I had never seen one marriage that made me feel like, wow, that's amazing. And then I became a Christian. And then I got around these couples, 10 more years older than me, and I was just blown away. And a dream was born in me of, Lord, would you give me that? To what lengths will you go? To what lengths will you go to renounce comfort and luxury for the sake of the gospel? To what lengths will you, will you decide that you need less and less and less. You know what the result will be? More and more for the poor and the lost. That's what will happen. You'll have more and more to give instead of being consumed with, oh, I just need more and bigger and better. You'll be like, no, I have plenty. That's what Paul says. If we have clothes, if we have food, we'll be happy with that. We live in Michigan. You got to throw it in a house, but that's it, you know? Instead of making our lives and our careers all about ourselves, to what lengths will you go to lock arms with the church family so that we can accomplish the mission the master left us? Listen to me. Jesus left us an assignment, a mission and he says that it will go well for those servants whom his master finds them doing what he assigned. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that our salvation, our approval before God does not depend on our efforts, does not depend on our ability to be excellent servants. 
because we'd be sunk. I'm so grateful that Jesus was taken, flooded by the wrath of God so that we would not have to be. This is why we celebrate Good Friday and then Easter. But Good Friday had to happen. He had to taste, drink the cup of God's wrath down to its last dregs so that we wouldn't have to. I'm so grateful that he, by his life, death, and resurrection, is the one who makes us faithful and wise servants. He keeps us. He will finish in us the work he started. He will take us home. He will take us home. And so as we take the communion, mm, I want us to celebrate the victory that Jesus had over sin and death. I want us to renew our devotion to our master. And if his delay, listen to me, and if his delay has taken you in the direction of license, licentiousness, so that you've given yourself to the flesh, sexually, in luxury, or excess of any kind, take it seriously. Do you listen to him? Do you trust him? Does he have all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Are you ready? Let's pray. Oh God, oh Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not shy away from giving us a hard word. That you did not believe as our culture does that we should only give positive language and concepts to people lest we upset their self-esteem. That you, Lord, knew we needed warnings. We needed to be taught by negative example. But you always want our good. It's why you taught us as you did because you're always working for our eternal good, even right now. So Lord, we come to your table. We come to the bread. We come to the cup, and we are humbled. We are humbled, Lord. We tremble. The justice just about the whole world was swept away during Noah's flood. So will it be at your return. But Lord, we pray not the whole world, not the elect, not your people. Make them many. Make them numerous. Please, God, save. Save. Father, we pray right now that you would help us renew our devotion to you. It can be embarrassing, Lord, to read about how people bow to all these other masters and then find that our devotion to you is so, so anemic. Let it not be, God. Make us a different kind of people. 
people of the new age. The kingdom of God come. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins in our Savior. Thank you that you forgive us, oh God, every single one of our sins. We receive forgiveness by the blood of Christ even now. Let's take a few moments to meditate on what God has taught us today, what he's impressing on your heart. Maybe he wants you to fast from something until Good Friday and Easter. Ponder the bread and the cup. We'll take it in a moment. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.